are listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks, I have an inspiring conversation with an ordinary person leading an extraordinary life. And today, Dr. Matt Flory is back on the podcast to talk about perimenopause. Dr. Matt Flory is the founder of the Functional Health Team. As a doctor practicing functional medicine, Dr. Flory specializes in holistically treating inflammation and inflammation-related complaints. Dr. Flory's team of health detectives utilize functional medicine's unique diagnostic procedures and largely natural treatments with a focus on methylation and nutrigenomics. It's a mouthful. Welcome back to the podcast, Matt. I'm here. Oh, no. Was the internet dropped? (laughs) Maybe it did. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Just all of a sudden, you were gone. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Well, hopefully that won't happen again. (laughs) Now, perimenopause is a pretty big topic. And, you know, from my perspective, it really does affect everyone at one point or another, even if you're not a female, because if you're a woman having difficulty managing this time, it can affect all of those who are around her too. So how about if we start with just what is perimenopause? Sure. I think that's a very, uh, <laughs> a very astute observation you made right there. I think, yeah, absolutely. Well, Janine, you know, women tend to think that they're getting into perimenopause and traditional kind of medical thought supports and says, uh, that they're getting into perimenopause and it's, uh, around a a drop in estrogen levels leading to hot flashes. You know, this is just kind of the typical progression, right? Mm -hmm. And then the the need to go on estrogen from there. And uh, I think through the conversation today, we should be able to really bring more of a framework to that, understanding it at a, at a deeper level. It's, it, that isn't quite the case. It's not as simple as that. But as, as you know, and if, if any of your listeners have heard some of our previous discussions, that's often the case mm-hmm. <laughs> with mm-hmm. the topics that you and I talk about. Is <laughs> and, and, I, and I try not to be um, a little too heavy on the information, but I do believe that education and understanding is paramount to being able to manage, uh, especially our health, right? But really, you know, any and all problems effectively. And so there's these misunderstandings there um, centered around this focus on estrogen levels dropping, right? Bottoming okay. out mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, the, and the traditional kind of hot flashes. But in, in reality, what we know is that between, you know, uh, average age, let's say 35 to 50, right? Okay. Where mm-hmm. the, these sorts of changes might start happening. And during this time period, estrogen levels uh, will drop maybe by about, you know, say 35% or so. So mm-hmm. around a third, okay. give or take some. Mm-hmm. But progesterone levels, those drop by a 75%. Oh, wow. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's really other physiologic or biochemical, however you want to look at it, changes that are ha- occurring that are of a greater magnitude, okay. should I say, mm-hmm. than, 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 the, than if we were to just say focus uh, on estrogen, okay. right? So mm-hmm. we can kind of talk about, you know, as we get later, I know we're going to probably 
dip into symptoms associated with things. We can certainly talk about, yeah, (laughs) we can talk about, you know, lower progesterone because really that's likely an earlier and maybe more appropriate focus or or a indicator uh, in our health, a driver of treatment, a driver of support. Okay. Right? So what might be some of the early symptoms um, that a person, I think what happens a lot of times is somebody will start having symptoms and then, but don't really realize what it is. And then later looking back, oh yeah, I was starting perimenopause. Sure. You know, and some of that we need to kind of frame, well, when could this start? When could it end? How long can it last? Right. We've got mm-hmm. to we've got to kind of understand uh, the the time frame in relationship to symptoms uh, as well as. Uh, you know, as as well as maybe what those symptoms are, because I, I, what we're going to see as we talk about symptoms or conditions is that there's uh, there's associated conditions, there's associated symptoms, there's confusing symptoms, right? Things mm-hmm, that could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes you and I talk about crossover symptoms, right, you know, yes. and so these may be something that uh, is misdiagnosed or maybe the way I like to say it, more misrecognized. Recognized, it, it, you call it one thing, and really, maybe it's another, or maybe it's a condition that is laying a foundation for the development of. Mm-hmm. So there's a you know, a lot of interplay here. But right. if we look at that time frame, uh, you know, you know, again, this is you know, I, I mentioned 35 to 50, a 15 year range, right, of of of, uh, of some of those um, hormone level drops, and when we look at perimenopause specifically itself, that's also a pretty broad range, right? Mm-hmm. On average, it could last, you know, six to, th- you know, say, 13 years on average, right? Okay. So it could be over a decade wow. that somebody's mm-hmm. going through, um, you know, just through these, um, uh, the ch- you know, these changes in, 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 in health kind of uh, uh, observations, okay. right, of, of mm-hmm. what's going on with them. Specifically, perimenopause is defined as that period of time Beginning when abnormal hormonal fluctuations begin or the or the normal kind of hormonal cycle is disrupted through to uh, one year after the last period. Okay, so so you you can't truly say you're through uh, you're through until through this time period. until it's been 12 months since the last bleed, okay. right? Got it. So that's one. It's one framework that we have to kind of we have to kind of be operating in, and we can kind of use to start defining this period of time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll find that uh, when we get into the specifics of symptoms, we're fi- we'll find that a lot of them. Uh, have a high dependence on our stress levels, right? Mm-hmm. Our diet and lifestyle, and uh, so that's a characteristic to, to to keep in mind, both in terms of uh, symptoms uh, as well as where treatment and support goes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have to also recognize due to the fact that there's so much variation in lifestyle, diet, Mm -hmm. right? The stresses in our life that 
the symptomatic pattern is can be supremely different for different women mm -hmm. right so so it's you know on one hand we're saying okay we've got a very broad topic here we're going to cover right and, mm -hmm. and on, on the other we'll try to bring some semblance of order and organization to that by by you know talking a little bit about you know about specifics but uh, but again about the broader brush strokes right that right. that create this so you know, really in perimenopause, uh, it's it's the absolute wrong time to go on estrogen. And you don't want to do this, you know, maybe, and we, we can get into this until you fully, t um, you're fully into menopause. But uh, that, that really is, is kind of the wrong time to do it when you just start to have these symptoms, right? Okay. When you're just starting to suspect it. And, and then to get into some of the, like we called it, crossover signs, symptoms, and, and get into some of the specifics, um, some of these will mimic hormone imbalance and some will be linked to the cause of hormone imbalance. So again, we might have a misdiagnosis, a misrecognition of the condition of the, of the of complaint that someone is having, uh, or it may be a foundational imbalance that's leading to. So things we can point our fingers at are uh, headaches, right? Okay. Uh, and what we got to think of here is, okay, yes, this can be um, a hormonal imbalance sign or a symptom. It can also be a sign of blood sugar dysregulation mm -hmm. in, in, in anyone, right? right? Blood sugar crashes, uh, especially when it's uh, associated with anxiety, maybe a, a short fuse, uh, things, uh, sweating, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. things like that. So uh, it's Im important to uh, discern this from uh, blood sugar problems. Insulin resistance is something that would definitely be in the conversation in terms of uh, when, when we're talking about hot flashes. Mm -hmm. we, we, we will touch back on this, okay? So could you define insulin resistance? Yeah, it's a it's a very common foundational and functional dysregulation of the metabolism of the body, right? Mm -hmm. We take our carbohydrate, we take glucose and we oxidize it. So using oxidation, respiration, our, our, our method of metabolism uh, in the human body and we create energy from it, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so insulin resistance is a condition where uh, and there isn't just one cause, right? There's a lots of different factors involved in it, but it is going to be a sign of this loss of proper uh, metabolic function, uh, loss of proper uh, oxidation and creation of energy, right? So mm -hmm. insulin resistance, you know, the insulin goes up. And so because insulin is responsible for getting glucose into your cells, Okay. The glucose goes up, right? And so most people don't are never alerted to this because of a insulin measurement maybe themselves, but their blood sugar, their glucose will just gently start to rise, right? Mm. Our our optimal glucose levels should be really within the 85 to 90 
uh, top end range. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. If we get up into the 93, 95, 97s, even though nobody, their medical doctor, their primary care physician, none of them are going to get excited about that. I'm going to get a little bit excited about that because Mm -hmm. that's a sign of insulin resistance creeping in. Okay. Right. So uh, that's a little, any other questions about insulin, insulin resistance or does that kind of help no, out that's there. yeah. I just thought because a lot of people may not really know what that means. So I sure, and and it's it's one of the foundational things to treat with with many disorders uh, because it will exist for decades before mm-hmm. a diabetes kicks in, right? Mm-hmm. Before type two diabetes kicks in. So how uh, do you but, how do you treat it? Well, you you well, it, it's there, there's a lot of options there. So it's very effectively, you know me, I, I, I am a big food is medicine uh, yeah. proponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's certainly dietary and nutritional strategies, how we, how you set up your process of daily intake of nutrients, right? Mm-hmm. When do you mm-hmm. eat, when do you eat a higher ratio of healthy fats and proteins? When do you bring your carbohydrates in throughout the day? There's a awareness that we can bring with a simple home test to what kind of carbohydrate producer are you in the first place? And this is a genetic, uh, just a genetic, uh, foundationally a genetic question. And so there's an easy home test you can do to say, okay, well, on a day-to-day basis, what percentage of my calories and intake should be proteins versus carbs versus fats, right? There should cool. be a little, there's three different categories of people. So certainly the food is medicine category. I almost always do add in some supplementation because there's a number of herbals and herbal blends out there that help to improve the effectiveness of insulin on the cell membrane. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of cell membranes, mm-hmm. there's a broader, uh, there's a broader what we would call condition of cell uh, of hormone resistance that is not necessarily an insulin or a thyroid hormone problem, but it's a cell membrane problem where our cells themselves are becoming less reactive and responsive to all of uh, all of our hormones let's say mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so that that's also something that can be treated with supplementation and diet so then there's exercise uh, methods that the that are effective for improving insulin's effectiveness mm-hmm. there are interesting little little biological hacks like say at the end of a warm shower turning on just the cold water for say three to five minutes, right? Or, or going out in the cold itself outdoors and spending some time in the cold. These things stimulate a enzyme in our, in our bodies called AMPK. And whether it's, you know, supplementation, diet, exercise, or a myriad of little, of interesting little, you know, biological hacks, there's many ways we can uh, influence the processing of glucose and the effectiveness of insulin in the body. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. I'm not sure I like the cold water part, but <laughs> <laughs> so many people don't, but Hey, it's, it's free medicine, right? That's yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it would certainly be worth a try. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I would, you know, granted, please nobody go out and, and think that that alone is going to do it and overdo it, right? We don't, mm-hmm. want anyone, we don't want anyone harming themselves. But put together with these other factors, there can be, uh, there's a lot of effectiveness there. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So back on the headaches, mm-hmm. right? So there was the insulin resistance, blood sugar dysregulation, but we also have to look at a crossover condition of central nervous system chronic inflammation. And this is something that uh, often manifests in fibromyalgia, migraines, or just chronic headaches. Mm -hmm. This is something Mm -hmm. that is uh, the foundations of which reside on bacterial overgrowth, frequently bacterial overgrowth in the gut. Potentially other forms of dysbiosis leading to gut inflammation, but small intestine bacterial overgrowth uh, is a very common etiology or a very common source uh, for this. Right. So, and then, you know, then this will lead to vitamin uh, nutrient deficiencies and just kind of snowball from there. Mm-hmm. Other crossover signs, symptoms uh, that you, you might notice through the, uh, through this uh, period of time, uh, depression. So, you know, your neurotransmitter balance begins in the gut. And I think we've talked about that in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very quickly imbalanced, your neurotransmitters, by poor absorption of nutrients, other downstream effects of inflammation, such as poor detoxification, poor methylation, all things that we'll touch upon here today. And we've talked about, you know, maybe more at, at, at length in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeast and candida problems will tend to show up. This may be earlier on in uh, perimenopause. Uh, infertility, certainly due to some of the hormone, if, if the hormone imbalance is uh, bad enough, if, if it's uh, great enough, fatigue, so, again, the, this may be related to some of the glucose processing issues in the mitochondria, which is kind of what we were describing earlier in, right. in terms of those treatments for uh, insulin resistance, some of the mitochondrial dysfunction. Because, you know, mitochondria has a, have a very intimate role in this conversation about hormones. Okay. Cholesterol, many people will be surprised to hear this, but cholesterol is converted by the mitochondria. It's in the mito- across the mitochondrial membrane. It's converted from uh, from cholesterol into pregnenolone and pregnenolone is kind of like a raw material for the sex hormones. Okay. It's a raw material for uh, the sex hormones for cortisol and for aldosterone, which aldosterone has some relationship uh, or, or it's resp- has responsibility in regulating blood pressure, okay. right? We mm-hmm. talked about cortisol before, mm-hmm. probably a little bit more recognizable for people and its association with inflammation and maybe leading to adrenal fatigue, adrenal dysfunction. But then the, the third one that uh, the third hormone group, let's call it, family that is part of this cholesterol to pregnenolone raw material supply chain are the sex hormones. So there's an intimate relationship as we talked you know, later about uh, within all of these uh, either substrates, raw materials, hormone families, and, and that sort of a thing. So mm-hmm. f- fatigue can be involved there both with the adrenal issues, mitochondrial issues, those sorts of things. Any of the inflammatory 
conditions, right, are going to uh, have a potential for brain fog. So there's another one. Right. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, heart palpitations are not uncommon. Liver dysfunction and sluggishness of the liver is is one that is important here with our crossover uh, with with hormonal processing and hormonal balance in the body. And one reason this is such a important thing to have knowledge of in your own body is that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is if it's not the quick, I think it is the quickest growing condition, right, in our developing countries. It, it, it's right up there if it isn't the, the top, but I'm pretty sure it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, you know, I see it cited as the top. Mm-hmm. Very and, you know, why would that be? Why would you think that would be if, if our if the liver dysfunction is is one of the quickest growing conditions? Well, what would make sense to you regarding that? Toxins. You got it, right? And especially when it is in the um, developing countries where this is this is growing the most. Uh, then we have allergies. A lot of people would not necessarily relate that to hormonal dysfunction, but a lot of uh, a lot of times this will show up. Okay, mm-hmm. weight control issues is definitely there. Uh, memory issues, especially on short term mm-hmm. short term memory and processing. Uh, thyroid issues kind of uh, spoke a bit touched upon thyroid a bit arthritis and you know it interestingly enough a lot of joint pain in older females uh or females in in perimenopause or, men- or menopause is a sign of, of low estrogen or progesterone oh interesting mm-hmm. uh so heart disease and then to just just to round out everything sleep disorders right <laughs> mm-hmm. so you won't sleep, you may not sleep well either <laughs> which exacerbates everything you got it absolutely right <laughs> wow so so th- this is pretty complex to figure out what is going on with each individual person i can see where uh, the idea of being a health detective is so intriguing for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, we have to touch upon detoxification. We have to touch upon, you know, what, what we're getting out of our bodies. We have to touch upon what we're putting in our bodies, right? The nutrition, mm-hmm. the supplementation. We have to touch upon risk risk factors for, you know, major conditions like 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 breast cancer and things like that. So we'll, uh, you know, we'll hit, a, a, as we, you know, wrap up, as we're wrapping up through today, we'll touch upon these things mm-hmm. and, and kind of shed, shed some more, more light on them. So what do you recommend? So let's say that someone is starting to have some symptoms. Is there something in a, let's say a more general way that I suppose looking at their diet, um, you know, that would be a good place to start seeing what their sugar intake is, is like kinds of foods they're eating, alcohol intake, carbohydrate. Sure. Yes. Those are some very important, uh, I mean, there's citations, uh, time after time after time in the, in the research literal, literature about caffeine, you know, remove it at least until you get things balanced and you can uh, establish patterns of balance in the hormones, right? Mm-hmm. Then at that point, there may be, you know, an option for kind of bringing it back in. Uh, you mentioned remove the sugar. Absolutely. Those are very top level 
necessities when you're doing when you're cleaning up the gut, which is kind of maybe a broader a broader recommendation, right? Mm-hmm. When we want mm-hmm. to bring balance to the hormones, uh, you know. You never want to supplement the hormones based upon symptoms only. So you really do need to have an understanding and awareness, uh, maybe through testing, uh, or where is that client in this process of perimenopause, menopause, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because at the beginning, again, your estrogen is not depleting as rapidly as other hormones. And What's really happening is your body's going through spurts, little spikes or cycles of actually increased estrogen because mm-hmm. it may, it may, it, you know, it may be lowering a bit, but then it's going to kind of uh, tip the scales back the other way, right? And it, and so these are just things you you need to be aware of. You need to be aware that cholesterol medications are going to be important when you're attempting to rebalance hormone levels, right? We just, I just outlined how cholesterol is literally the raw material that feeds into all of those hormones that we mentioned. And Mm so manipulating the cholesterol down right oh. through a, through a medication or you know even you know people might use red rice yeast I, i've seen that to bring you know that'll bring it's a natural way to bring cholesterol down mm-hmm. but even even that again is going to influence your availability of of certain hormones right, uh, right? right. The, the raw materials so you know other recommendations that are within the, this uh, question of balancing hormones and some of this might sound familiar from uh from what we've you know kind of already talked about potentially but exercise right so mm-hmm. certain sorts of exercise are going to reduce the intensity and duration of hot flashes why is exercise going to do that well it's going to help improve some very basic functional issues with mitochondria insulin you know uh insulin effectiveness and therefore on on up the line so what would be what would be the best kind of exercise that might affect well yeah you really the nice part is you have a lot of variety here it's not like you have to go out and run or something Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. you don't have to swim so what you really want to do here is you want to do interval style of exercise Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. pick your poison pick what you like Mm -hmm. uh it's just how you do it that's important. So mm-hmm. for mitochondrial health, whatever you're doing, you want to, in a exercise session, and you may not be able to start here, that's all right, but you want to work up for maximal result. You want to work up to a where you're getting nine peaks within you of, of elevated into the cardio zone, right? For, for heart rate. And then, and then once you get up there, then you maybe, if you've been, if you've been biking, you slow down. If you've been running, then you walk, right? Mm -hmm. You you Mm -hmm. go ahead and you decrease that intensity, monitoring your pulse, monitoring your respirations until you get back into just the kind of the normal zone. Okay. And then you go and then you ramp it back up again, intensity wise. And, And you do that nine times is, where you're having the most ideal effect on mitochondria. And what you're doing is Mm. you're actually literally killing off the weaker of the mitochondria and the mitochondria themselves replicate. They have their own DNA. Some of the mitochondrial genome is actually, you know, linked to some autoimmune disease. 
memories and things like that too. Mm-hmm. And so that's just kind of something to tuck back in the, in the back of the head uh, to know that that could be involved there, but you're killing off the weaker mitochondria so that while you're eating right, while you are maybe taking some supplementation to support mitochondrial health, that the new ones being produced are being supported by that nutrition and supplementation. They're being supported to be healthier than what you killed off. It's, it's a survival of the fittest kind of situ- situation, mm-hmm. kind of a almost a Darwinian, right, kind of a, a turnover in population. Oh, that's fascinating. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I didn't really understand before because I know I I get some uh, I get emails from like Dr. Mercola and some other people. He's big on interval, Um, but I never really understood like why, you know, the the underlying uh, physiology. So thank you. Yeah, that's exactly why. That's exactly why. And then to kind of round out the list of where where do we need to apply focus for re, you know the kind of the general rebalancing hormones uh, process mm-hmm. uh liver detox is a must and i think you know that'll become more and more apparent as we get here into talking about uh, estrogens the recycling of estrogens the detoxification and its relationship to breast cancer and, and things like that mm-hmm. and then there's many other specific and unique in uh, nutritional supplement strategies that's really just too kind of uh, broad to go into all of them here that relate to okay do, on a on a test we get back are we looking at low progesterone high progesterone low estradiol high estradiol low testosterone high testosterone right um, those sorts of specifics uh, that that's probably just a little too it, it's it's a it's a conversation to get into for my full day seminar mm-hmm. on hormones right mm-hmm. <laughs> so so, a, so speaking about tests what yeah. do you recommend i because you could do blood tests you can do saliva you can do urine there are a lot of different ways to test for uh the uh, estrogens uh progesterone and testosterone what do you recommend as the most yeah. accurate there are there are this is a, a bit of an interesting conversation, but it's not too lengthy. We can we can kind of really hone in on it. Uh, blood testing is good, is good, or you might say good enough, right, for some of the hormones. And the reason why you uh, might say that there are there's testing like uh, dried urine testing, a test called the Dutch test that mm-hmm. I would say is maybe a gold standard for giving you accuracy. Mm-hmm. But the reason why blood testing is still in the conversation, number one, it's convention, right? right. It's typically what uh, what is going to be done by your primary care physician. And there really is a ton of research out there on a number of the hormones as related to their levels in blood. And so blood, I think, is still quite useful, although it does have its downfalls, right? Now, mm-hmm. one certain hormones that seem to have the the most reliable information in terms of blood testing are estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, uh, one called DHEA mm-hmm. that can be converted both into uh, can be converted into the sex hormones. So those are some pretty good ones with with blood. Uh, urine is, I think, when we're talking about, 
breaking down estrogen into either the cancer protective or cancer stimulating driving estrogen metabolites okay, okay. The, the byproducts of breaking it down mm-hmm. getting rid of it that's a that's certainly a urine test okay? okay and then the methylation of some of these hormone metabolites that's a definitely definitely a urine test too there are some out there that'll test saliva there's just not as much research on those it, 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 i can't and i don't not too many people i would say i think would say that they're just completely unreliable right mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. that there's less information backing up some of the clinical decisions that can be made if that does that make some sense mm-hmm. yes yes okay yeah. so when you're talking about the breaking down the meta- uh the the hormones and the metabolites is does that happen in the liver or where does that happen Right. So these conversion of hormones from one form to another happens all over the body. Okay. Specifically, yes, the breakdown, at least the uh, the methylation process, uh, methylation is a phase two liver uh, detoxification reaction. So Mm -hmm. that one certainly, that certainly happens there, but some of these conversions can happen, you know, in various cells in our body, both in terms of creating uh, hormones and breaking them down. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and one of the things, interestingly enough, that will, can lead to such imbalances in hormones is the fact that, there's a high concentration of enzymes in adipose cells, in fat cells, ah. that will c- convert, right? It will convert uh, these hormones. And so, therefore, there's a wide variety between two different people, right? How, how much adipose tissue they have and what the influences are going to be on their hormone, hormonal balance. Uh, so, so, Matt, what happens yeah. if somebody's losing weight? What happens if somebody's losing weight? Well, generally that's going to be a generally that's going to be a good thing because right. It's but good. what happens to if the like the hormones that are stored in the adipose tissue? Well, some hormones will say will say stored there, but really it, it's kind of this enzyme that converts the hormones, and so oh, more okay. than more than when you lose weight, all of a sudden. I was, I'm going to say this, this is not so much the concern that all of us, it's not so much a concern. You're losing weight. So you're dumping a bunch of hormones into your system, okay. right? Okay. It's more of, it's more of the concept that if you're losing weight, you're burning these fat cells, these storage cells, maybe reducing the amount of them. And so therefore your hormonal balance has a better opportunity to achieve balance because they're there's less of an influence of these uh, aromatase enzymes or, or enzymes within the fat cells that are going to <laughs> uh, put their foot on the, the scales, right? Put their mm-hmm. foot on the teeter-totter of, of, of hormonal balance. Does, does it make okay. sense how I was framing mm-hmm. that? Or did... mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think that, that does. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I thought that's something that, you know, I've, I've wondered about that, is, that if you're storing or holding – um, hormones yeah. in your in the fat tissue. Then yeah. what happens when you start losing weight? Does that create an imbalance well, of some sort? 
And that's a great logical question. And so, you know, there, there's a losing weight. There's a there's a number of positive effects of that. Hormone balance can be one of them. The thing that that you do want to be aware of if you are losing weight is that a number of toxins are stored in the fat cells. Mm, right. Okay. Some of these toxins, while they may not be a hormone themselves, they could be what we uh, term a xenoestrogen, okay. okay, or a estrogen lookalike, an estrogen that it acts like estrogen. It's an imitator of estrogen, and you, we might as well just say this now, right? Mm -hmm. Estrogen is responsible for growth and proliferation of tissue in our body. Okay. Okay. This is desirable when there's a developing uh, life form in our body, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is maybe undesirable when there's not, right? right? We right. don't want, right, uh, growth and proliferation of tissue is a hallmark of cancer, right? right. So right. this is where we start to get in and bridge into this conversation. So these xenoestrogens that, Yes, those those could be stored in fat cells. It's quite possible, as well as whatever we're taking in from our environment. And make a note: we need to cover the you know the environmental uh, uh, inroads that we, we we bring on some of these xenoestrogens and other toxins before we're done today. But knowing that uh, we could be dumping these while we lose weight, it doesn't it doesn't. It doesn't mean we shouldn't lose weight. There's way too many benefits, right, for, oh, for burning yes, that absolutely. adipose tissue and, and coming to a healthy weight. But we may uh, – again, it's why I mentioned that part of a overall balancing protocol may be, is going to involve some sort of liver detoxification support, maybe liver regeneration support depending on the health of the liver. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that that's why that's going to be an important component because you could be dumping these lookalikes, these imitators of mm -hmm, estrogen. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So let me, Matt, if I could just step back a moment, because I, when you said estrogens involved in um, proliferation of tissue, would mm -hmm. that mean that if you had a serious injury, would your estrogen levels go up to uh, to promote the growth of new new healthy tissue? Or is that? Am I just off as part of there? that? As, just, as part of that? So as part of that healing process? Yeah, I was saying? just curious. You know, there's 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 a lot that's going to go on within the hormonal balance. Okay, during that time, and yes, there are going to be influences on on estrogen levels. The stress response, okay, that's induced. During recovery from, uh, and it could be a physical injury, it could be a, a, an emotional trauma, right, mm -hmm. Janine? Mm -hmm. okay. okay, so all of these are important here, but the, uh, the, the important concept here is that when you're undergoing that stress response, okay, your body's going to be utilizing th things like... Uh, well, all of your metabolic processes, so your your blood sugar, th th these just the raw materials your body needs to carry out uh, to carry out regeneration and and tissue healing. Mm -hmm. So this is again is going to then dive into the sex hormones as well as cortisol and, and the whole. You got to kind of think of the 
overall hormonal balance as a as a boat right and it's going to rock the boat big time mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's mm-hmm. going to be a, a there's going to be a, a lot of shifting of uh, of these uh, of this boat you know there's going to be a lot of shifting of all of these hormones around and kind of sloshing around so it certainly is something you that that has to be considered as part of the healing process from mm-hmm. an injury. Well, and it just, I mean, I may be off here, but it just struck me that with what you're saying, that if someone has a serious injury, that that could really mess up your hormones and, and yeah, make it difficult it, to recover from. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, there's the, Growth and proliferation driven by estrogen. There's growth factor. There's there, there's all there's all sorts of there's all sorts of uh, implications that'll happen there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, now that we've gotten off on a couple of different tracks, I can't remember where we were. <laughs> so no problem. Uh, let's uh, see. Uh, let's see. So, well, so we were kind of touching upon. We were kind of touching upon estrogens, breakdown, breast cancer. We definitely want to hit the breast cancer, right? Okay, go and ahead. Some of mm-hmm. that sort of. So where breast cancer risk comes into play is in the conversation about estrogen, okay. right? And there's a couple major categories or a couple major topics we could talk about here. We've got either the the balance of estrogen we've got the balance of how we break down estrogen and then we've got those xenoestrogens those mm-hmm. those lookalikes mm-hmm. that are, that are kind of major topics in this in this discussion so what are some best... of the what are some of the yeah. xenoestrogens Matt sure 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 some of the xenoestrogens are going to be things uh, uh, like our, our, some of the plastics, right? Oh, so this is okay. where we get into, you know, BPA-free mm-hmm. and, and the importance of, of that. Uh, some of the, the liners they put in, in canned foods, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our sources of xenoestrogens uh, are car exhaust fumes. Mm. Uh, of the food sources, there's hormones that are found in meats and mm-hmm. in dairy, uh, animal products, uh, there's sprayed plastics on fruits and veggies that make mm-hmm. them more attractive for selling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. There's food dyes that are another source. In what our about pers- soy? In, in our soy? Yes. So you're, you're safer with soy if you're doing a fermented form. Okay. I'll just kind of to keep okay. it simple like that. Okay. But yes, that is that is something that should be watched. But the yeah, the fermented sores, your miso, your tempa, those sorts of things are generally healthier. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the one of the big questions with soy too is is it it's common it can commonly be an infl- inflammatory trigger for people and so then you kind of feed that information back into the back into higher up in the conversation when we were talking you know talk about gut health right mm-hmm. and its implications on the whole cascade of events that can that can uh, uh, trigger hormonal imbalance mm-hmm. uh 
but as, you know, personal care products are something that has to be uh, looked at very and, and really you just need to rotate out your old chemical laden personal care products and introduce good essential oil based uh, natural uh, natural sourced produced personal care products your mm -hmm. soaps your shampoos mm -hmm. your lotions you know if people need a, a good source of this they can always you know kind of talk to us because we've got great great suppliers of these of, of, of these sorts of products mm -hmm. uh, home furnishings you have to watch out for off gassing from things like the plastics in our countertops or paneling wood paneling our, our new carpeting our new furniture our new drapes that have flame retardants and things like these this sprayed on them as as safety and and you can't hardly get around this. I mean, these are God. these are production. Yeah, I mean, these are production. These are you know regulatory uh, compliance uh, factors by the by the producers of these goods that they have to do, they have to do on on these things. Uh, and you know, again, with carpeting, our Scotch Guard, right? All these sorts mm -hmm. of things we might use. So, what are we using to clean our carpets if we have carpet? Right? Mm -hmm. All these questions are questions that need to be asked. Uh, our vehicles, you know that new car smell, Janine. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not so good for your, not so good for your hormonal balance. We'll mm -hmm. say, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, glyphosate comes into this, mm -hmm. comes into this conversation, mm -hmm. and, and so you know whether it's these things or we're talking about a pesticide because they. Uh, they imbalance the gut microbiome and therefore lead to methylation problems and therefore lead to hormonal disruption. There's, you're right when you say it can get very complicated. Just these are all factors, and and you, and you need to be really you need to be supported by somebody who can look at that bigger picture. And it's not going to happen. And obviously, it's not going to happen in four to six weeks, right? With mm -hmm. all these factors going on, mm -hmm. right? So. You know. I know it how okay so the sense that I'm getting is that this can be really overwhelming and and I can see people just going whatever <laughs> no that, that it, there's just so much what what um how to make this not overwhelming how to make how to it make so this, that yeah. somebody can take a a first step and um you know, yeah. because especially if you're feeling like crap, right? It's hard to have the energy, like somebody might be listening to this and going, oh my God, I don't have the energy to <laughs> to deal with this. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I applaud those that are willing to take responsibility and a role in their own health. Mm. But like you said, especially when you're feeling crappy because of hormonal imbalance, because of autoimmune disease, whatever it is, uh, in these topics that are overwhelming, that's why you don't do it yourself. Okay. Mm -hmm. First step. So don't take too much on is my first suggestion, right? Find somebody that can look at the big picture for you and walk you down the road. Don't have, don't, you know, be expecting that if you're going to make dietary changes, if you're going to work on detoxification, expect that it's going to take three to six months before you start to see 
shifts happening so that, you know, you don't get discouraged too early on and, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so mm-hmm, to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's my number one uh, suggestion is, is, you know, reading blogs, watching videos, listening to podcasts, even like we're doing, uh, I, I, I applaud those, but trying to take that information and do with it yourself is going that that's probably the most overwhelming thing I see uh, in, in, in real life mm-hmm. with, with real clients mm-hmm. right so find somebody to support you okay Num- is a number one right second it's going to be starting to change some of the diet right mm-hmm. that's again food is medicine and it's going to trickle into so many different aspects of, of, of balancing hormones, uh, get, do you have to, Matt, do you have to do it all at once or, or can somebody just start with one thing? Like maybe, I know sugar is so hard for most people, but, uh, okay. So one of the things that I do is I don't do any cane sugar. So that that doesn't mean I can't have sweets. I created the most wonderful truffle brownies. But, um, you know, so I use honey. I use maple syrup. Mm-hmm. I use things like that. So, But if you don't, like just not doing cane sugar cuts out a lot of stuff that you can't do and forces you to at least use healthier sweeteners. It does. It's a place it to start. It, it is a place to start. Uh, you know, a concept a, a one single concept I like to do, uh, I actually, one single concept I do with everyone I work with is they do a, a 14 to 21 day challenge on eating only real food. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is going to cut out the sugar without focusing on sugar for Got one it. thing. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose of doing this challenge is number one, I actually tell people I don't care if you're successful, right, for the 14 <laughs> or the 21 days. In fact, I expect th- there to be failures. And that's okay. The importance is is that you're going to answer some questions at the end of that 14 to 21 days that's going to help us know what was difficult about it, right? Are there social situations? Are there uh, individual habits? Are there stress responses? Okay. And then, then we can kind of line up your support based upon what those needs are. The other thing is here too, is that in that 14 to 21 days of eating only real food, somebody's, you know, focusing on that rather than, oh, not sugar, not sugar, not sugar, you know, just not to go too far off, but an old an old adage I remember older an old saying within some of these uh, some of these conversations is the more we focus on not something, the more we bring that into our life. Right, <laughs> right. You know, so the more cravings we bring in, if we're thinking, oh, I I, I got to go not sugar, because what happens I see when people do this real food challenge mm-hmm. is they start to lose a taste for sugar mm-hmm. very. With frequently now that's not everybody and if you don't if you literally have cravings then that actually is a super important piece of information for someone like myself meaning we've got a mitochondria problem mm-hmm. we have to we have to do the mitochondrial uh, 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 focus right and, and, and work there so I like to Put people on the real food challenge. Number one, for a, a large percentage of people, it's extremely motivating because they feel better. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, they mm-hmm. recognize this sort of a thing. Maybe they're 
maybe their uh, carb cravings or sugar cravings, they go away on their own. And so by focusing on one positive thing, we can kind of have the effects of the of, of maybe something like just an elimination of sugar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, again, if we if we just if we think about the f- mindset, the, 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 the framework of what's going on when somebody's trying to eliminate sugar, they're like, okay, I'm going to abstain from sugar. I'm going to abstain from sugar. Again, they're thinking about it. They're kind of getting this not sugar effect on bringing it, the, having it on the top of their minds. But then they also are going to be more prone to, to do what? Well, th- things like, okay, well, I, I, if I'm going to be so good on eliminating sugar, well, then I'm going to have a cheat day, right? Mm -hmm. As, as, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as part of my process of eliminating sugar. And so you're kind of eliminating sugar. You're not really eliminating sugar, right? Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And that cheat day can have really detrimental effects on your physiology and it can kind of screw up the whole thing. So while I am completely in favor of eliminating, reducing, uh, sugar, especially processed sugar. It is, I do tend personally to go a different direction in terms of focusing someone on their dietary uh, Mm -hmm. changes. Okay. So let's say Matt, I think this is, uh, might be really helpful for some people. So let's say somebody would really like to just give say two weeks there they'll allow themselves two weeks and maybe as they go along they'd want to do more of this real food just to see how how they feel how they and, and see if they feel any different um, so what would that entail what like does real food mean you can't bake something or Right. You know, great question. Frequently, your baked goods are going to be cut out during this time because okay. you, you it's the processing of a food product into an edible food substance. OK, OK. <laughs> that, that, that is one of the criteria. OK, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the grains. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, you know, we use here at home for for some of our healthy you know, baked goods and treats, things like that. This great sunflower seed flour, mm-hmm. and it's, it's super healthy and it tastes great. And but even that would be cut out on a real food challenge, mm-hmm. right? You're going to stick to your fruits, your vegetables. You're going to stick to your uh, meats and proteins uh, for whatever level is is right for your preference or religious, you know, mm-hmm. uh, affiliations mm-hmm. or, or, you know, just philosoph- philosophies of life, whatever that is. And then the other level of that, I would say, is that you, you really want to do that safely, too. So you, you need to under, you need to know what this dirty dozen is when it comes right. to toxicity when it, uh, in the conversation of fruits and vegetables and mm-hmm. and be ad- adhering to uh generally all organic when you're eating something that you don't remove the outer skin or peel or or rind from Mm -hmm. right yeah especially like strawberries blueberries um i was just reading uh somebody did a some testing on i think it was kale and spinach and there was something else a a bunch of different vegetables yeah. And um, there was one other one, but the the three, it was kale, spinach, and another one where they found the highest amount of pesticides. Right. 
Yeah, and and uh, so, uh, right. So 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 that becomes really important. You know, something that can be done with foods that you know are not organic. So you know that they're going to have been sprayed. Something you can do as a next best option. Mm-hmm. I, I, I won't say that it's going to remove everything, but if you put a couple tablespoons of baking soda in, in water and okay. let them soak, let them soak for, I, you know, I think it's somewhere 10 to 20 minutes. Okay. Let the, let the veggies or fruits soak in that, then it's going to remove a lot of the, the pesticides. It's going to remove a lot of the uh, what's been sprayed on that vegetable or fruit. So that that's one thing you can do in a pinch at home. Oh, thank but, you, you know, for that because I didn't know that. Sure. And you know, a lot of people do, just don't have access to organics. A lot of a lot of grocery stores will have like a little bit, you know, here and there. Yeah. But sometimes you just you you just can't get it. Right. Yeah. So that that's that's your next best option when it comes to. Uh, being unable to mm-hmm, purchase mm-hmm. organic. Mm-hmm. So that was two tablespoons of baking soda. And and this is a you know this is a formula that I you know I looked up online and found uh-huh. online right. Okay. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like it's two tablespoons. Uh, in you know, and we usually use a, a glass pie pie uh, or casserole dish, something like that. Dump the veggies in, fill it with water, throw a couple tablespoons of baking soda in, and mix it up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And baking soda is cheap, so that's that's it an is. easy solution <laughs> to at least help. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So, so if you don't have access to organics, or for some reason, I mean, sometimes something that's organic is so much more expensive than uh, than a I don't know what to call it, a regular <laughs> like a well, regular it, item that, you know, yeah. maybe you can't afford it. Although it's always good to check because sometimes I found, like the other day I was looking at uh, regular lettuce and organic lettuce. And for some reason, the organic lettuce was less expensive. I'm like, wow, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a place where a person can really just start on their own is really looking at um, what they're ingesting, what they're taking in, and um, and looking at the plastics too. I didn't now when you were talking about plastic on uh, fruits and vegetables, are you talking about something they're coated with? Or are you talking about like the plastic wrap that? Uh, Oh, no. You would like to think it was just the plastic wrap. Jeez, mm, great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just think back to these uh, food photographers, right? Mm-hmm, have you ever mm-hmm. seen anything on that, how they how they spray the foods down to make it look more enticing for right. their photographs? things like that they you know i don't know which came first whether that the the photography uh techniques were developed and then that was maybe adopted a a bit into our grocery stores for how they how they display foods Mm -hmm. but the foods look better right Mm. and so we tend to buy them so your your more attractive vegetables and fruits might be the most unhealthy you never know So what you're saying is they could be sprayed with some kind of a a plastic. I mean, I know sometimes what is it? Cucumbers have like a they'll have a waxy coating on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, it seems it seems overwhelming almost. So so let's. Well, I- 
I just I just want to real quickly point out that I get it because you know I started working with people in functional medicine in a private practice traditionally where you know you're you know what you do you go into the doctor you wait in the waiting room you, you know maybe you drive hopefully you know five or ten minutes but maybe the the good doctor is you know an hour away mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and so you, you sit in the waiting room for an appointment with the doctor for a lot of functional medicine things it's going to be cash out of pocket for a lot of whole you know that I mean they, your insurance doesn't cover a lot of holistic stuff right, so now exactly. you're paying cash out of pocket how long of appointment an appointment can you afford mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. 15 30 minutes and so you've got to get all this information packed into a plan within that time. And then you leave and you've got it a checkup, you know, maybe in eight or 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you have questions, you know, on day four, day mm -hmm. five. Mm -hmm. after you leave. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why I believe that, that, a new model was needed for delivering a lot of this stuff. So it isn't so overwhelming. So you can do little bits at a time and, and you know, we don't have to go deep into that, but that's how I created functional health team. It's structured in a way that it's just drips out, you know, little bits, you know, want take one thing for this 30 days, you know, work on it and then move on and just build yourself a foundation for, uh, for good health to happen. Right. right. Because uh, our bodies are inherently going to respond to our environment. And it's about controlling that environment, whether we're trying to introduce uh, through a bioidentical uh, hormone blend so that our, our, you know, we're getting something or absorbing something from our environment that's going to balance our hormones or whether we're going to eat right so that we're breaking down our are and detoxifying well it doesn't matter right it's it, it's when we control that environment in little bits that we create a foundation for getting better over time mm -hmm. got it so so before we wrap up the one thing i just you just mentioned something because i was racking my brain i had a question for you and then i forgot it because i didn't write it down and then you just happened to mention it bioidentical hormones versus I don't know, what do you call regular hormones or I'm not sure how to how to classify non bioidentical. Why is it is it better to use bioidentical if you're going to use hormones? Why is sure. it better to use bioidentical? Well, so I say you have your bioidentical and you have your synthetics, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Well, the whole honestly, the whole question of what which is better can in one sense, be talked about that they're actual hormones, right? They're they're literally physiologically active normal hormones. They're not a a, a synthetic substance. Okay. Okay. Uh, and what they can do with bioidentical hormones differently, because a lot of your synthetics are going to be delivered through a capsule, a pill, some things like that, right? Okay. They're going to be mass manufactured. So they're going to be manufactured for broader groups of people, mm -hmm. all right? This does not mean that you and your unique individual levels of hormones, which we said can vary greatly based upon the lifestyle, dietary, and stress factors, right? right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> all these other factors – that mass manufactured broad 
uh, intended to be broad spectrum delivered hor- synthetic hormone is not going to match up with you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the benefit with the bioidentical is that once you get the right testing done and you have your individual profile of hormones and the doctor's good enough that they've assessed your stress levels, they've assessed your dietary needs, all of these things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Then they can tailor not only some sort of support program, but they can tailor that bioidentical uh, hormonal supplement treatment uh, medication, if you will. People call it a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. They can tailor that through uh, the through a pharmacological process, so it's unique for you. Got it. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say someone's really motivated after listening to this. They, they'd really like to uh, work with you or your team. Now, you set up the functional health team as a, uh, an internet service uh, so that people don't have to come to you physically, right? That is true. The way I like to talk about it is it's really the utmost of convenience. I mean, you can have your appointment over your lunch break in your car. I have clients that do that sometimes, (laughs) Uh, but the majority of them, and I recommend people do it, you know, sitting in their comfy chair at home or Mm -hmm. on the couch Mm -hmm. and uh, and, and being comfortable, being uh, having privacy uh, like that to be able uh, to to really get to work. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, we, we do... Uh, pretty much all of our uh, one-on-one, the, our, our strategy sessions, the functional medicine strategy, strategy sessions, we do our uh, either focus or transformational one-on-one support sessions or our group classes. Those last ones that I mentioned, those last three are educational and health coaching support. So I don't necessarily do all of them, but that's where the team comes in, mm-hmm. right? We've got, mm-hmm. we've got the rest of team members that help in their areas of specialty support people in making these life changes. Uh, maybe they know what life change they need to make. It's just hard to do because your lifestyle. Yeah, yes. and so <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, that's where the, that's where these expert health coaches are just hit home runs all the time. Right. It's just helping you to get a handle on how can I make this work? I'm, I'm a big proponent of, uh, you know, personally, when somebody tells me I can't do something or it's not possible, that's what gets me started thinking, okay, well, how is that going to actually work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we might have to be creative here. So, you know, functional health team, the format is a creative uh, design to deliver the support and the functional medicine strategy to clients in a more convenient, more accessible, and a and I feel a more doable way, something that is really going to help people actually be able to make these changes and make them last. Mm-hmm. And how does it, um, what happens if somebody needs lab work? How does that, how does that Oh, work? that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Uh, most of the tests that we do, a kit will be sent to your door or maybe your P.O. box, right? Whatever mm-hmm. it is, but they'll, they'll mm-hmm. be sent to your, you in the mail. You do it. The lab tests it. We get the results. Now, for some of the blood okay. testing, obviously, you're not going to draw your own blood, or hopefully <laughs> not, right? So, uh, but we have, we have contracts set up uh, across, the, uh, across the, uh, the country. We have uh, l- contracts set up where we can go in for extremely, extremely affordable rates and get 
the uh, blood test done. In fact, our, our rates, I've never seen anyone out there, even with those companies that uh, sell blood testing uh, direct to consumers over the internet, our prices beat all the time. So I'm really proud of that. And then the other thing that's a reality of the blood testing is uh, that we do try to utilize your primary care physician for every bit of good they can do for you, okay. right? So mm -hmm. the way the way it often looks is that, you know, we want to get some blood work done or, or we need to get some blood work done. We'll create like the overall profile that we want to see. If you want to go that direction, you can take that into your primary care physician. They'll order a mere fraction of what we want to do <laughs> because they're, you know, and, and God love them. You know, they're, they're good people. It's just they're looking for pathology and they're in disease. They're looking for what's going to kill people. Right. You know, okay. in, in a week. And. What we're looking for is we're looking for deeper than that. We're looking for nuances in the blood work. Mm -hmm. We're looking for things that tell us that things aren't functioning optimally, not that you're about to keel over, right? So you let, we let them do what they'll do, and then we go on the back end and we supplement the, what they did with the rest of what we need to see. And mm -hmm. that generally makes it incredibly affordable for people. Mm -hmm. Great. Awesome. So if somebody wants to contact you, what do they do? Sure. Uh, well, we have a toll-free number. That's 1-888-474-1888. We do have an email address that you can contact, info at functionalhealthteam.com. And then there's our good old website. You know, we're not hiding it from anybody. There's a number of ways <laughs> you can contact us on there and information about our programs and, and, and ways to ways to get in touch with us uh, to, to get more information. Mm -hmm. And if people didn't get that, they're driving or whatever, and they can't write it down, all of this is on the podcast website too. And I think what I'll do is put links to our past podcast conversations, because we've done conversations on functional medicine, on toxins, on detoxing, on methylation. We've done a lot of different ones. And uh, I'll put links to those in case somebody would like to catch up on some of those. Very cool. Yeah. I th thank you so much for having me on. I have so much fun on these with you. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Thanks a lot, Dr. Matt. I really, really appreciate uh all that you do and um, and you're persevering. You're with the functional health team. It's a it's a new concept and it's it's something that uh, you know uh, kind of a, a I've seen you go through lots of startup growing pains and um, I'm really glad you've stuck with it because I think it's uh, it's something that can really help a lot of people. Well, thank you much. It's a passion of mine and and it's a lot of fun. I will be very honest with you. I, That's I don't look most at it as important. A job. It's That's right. It's <laughs> yeah. passion. It's yeah, passion. absolutely. I, I, my theory is that we spend way too many hours, quote unquote, working. It should be something you really enjoy. And, uh, you know, obviously not all of it's going to be fun, but uh, a, a majority of it should really be, you know, something that you're passionate about and, and fun for you to do. I wanted to take a let a quick break happen and i think i need to do just a two minutes on this estrogen and breast cancer thing okay is that okay sure cool all right so here we go so one place to start in the conversation of breast cancer and estrogen is kind of this debate on you know is breast cancer genetic 
right? Mm -hmm. And if we look at human, human genome studies over the entire existence of humans, only uh, the genome, okay, has only changed 0.02% of in all of human existence. Now, get, wrap your mind wow. around that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's, mm -hmm. it's minuscule. Right. So if you think, you know, is it, is it a problem of genetics? It's not as likely as is it, is it a problem of the environment, right? Right. Because our environment that has changed dramatically diff, high, higher than 0.02 percent. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, and and what we know is that the incidence, more information to back this up, the incidence of breast cancer in underdeveloped or less developed countries is super low, where in the higher developed countries, it's super high. And you even mentioned earlier that why, why could that be with the, with the liver problems? It's toxins. Our environment's more mm -hmm. toxic with the more chemicals and the more industry we have. Okay. So these are really important factors to really help us understand that this problem of breast cancer really isn't a solely genetic associated issue. Mm -hmm. Now, I before we get a bunch of backlash, we want to acknowledge that absolutely there are certain genetic SNPs, right, alterations in our genetics that can make a person more susceptible mm -hmm. to, to cancer, mm -hmm. to breast cancer, right? The, the, the famous one is the BRCA, right? BRCA1, BRCA2 mm -hmm. gene. But these genes only appear in that, in that cancerous form in about – and again, this is a rough number, but approximately, five, say, 5% of breast cancer cases. Hmm. So hmm. it, while it's a reality, it is not the dominant factor is, is really what we're saying here. And so uh, it's the, it's, what are the dominant factors are things like when estrogen is produced, it has to be broken down. We got to get rid of it. There's a balance to everything in our body. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's broken down is what's super important here. Okay. And so when we produce estrogen, there's three types of, there's three major types, let's say, of estrogens in the estrogen family. And the ratio of these to each other is very, very important. Okay? okay. There's a very weak estrogen that when it's in higher concentrations, Okay. Mm -hmm. That weaker estrogen, what do you say estrogen does? It causes proliferation and growth of tissue. Mm -hmm. So when the weaker estrogen is in higher amounts, then we have less growth and proliferation of tissue. So the higher this ratio of the weaker estrogen to the stronger ones, or this estrogen quotient, as it's called, uh, when it's... Uh, uh, when the when the number's higher and there's more of this weak, well then your breast cancer risk is lower. So on the on the production end of how our estrogen balance is between these three in, in the in the body, that's one very important factor in breast cancer risk. Mm -hmm. Right? We want more mm -hmm. of the weaker estrogen in there. Now on the detoxification, on the other side of the equation where we're getting rid of the estrogens, again, there are some genetic factors here because our enzymes in our liver, in our phase one of the liver, are our CYP enzymes. These, uh, there's three different ones that convert estrogen into uh, metabolites that we're going to get rid of in our body, okay. right? And we won't, you know, we don't need to necessarily get into the, the, the nitty gritty details of them, but these... Mm -hmm. 
three different uh, phase one enzymes. Some some of them, when they're uh, upregulated or they're they're operating at full speed, are going to produce uh, literally com- compounds that protect you against cancer, protect mm, you against mm-hmm. the growth and development. Uh, some of these same enzymes are blocked by alcohol and pesticides. Okay, mm. they're the ones that produce the healthy estrogen. So there's another place where some of these, I guess we could say toxins come in and, and, and can cause some issues. Uh, then, uh, you know, other than that, once we have a healthy ratio of the breakdown components, once we've produced more of the cancer protective estrogen metabolites rather than the ones that literally will cause DNA damage. Mm -hmm. They can encourage tumor development. That's the other, that's the flip side of that with, with some of those enzymes. Once that happens, then the methylation process, right? That's when phase two of the liver comes in and the proper methylation of those metabolites is very important to the proper elimination of estrogens and then one so our methylation say supplements or our practices that people do whether it's dietary and the leafy greens folates or maybe they're taking pre-methylated versions of cabalamin or 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 or, uh, uh, folates uh this can be very supportive another thing that needs to be mentioned in terms of support here though is we can really upregulate the production of the protective forms of those estrogen breakdown Mm -hmm. chemicals, those metabolites, by using uh, diendolmethane, which you may have heard of before, but you definitely heard of the foods that it comes in, which are the cruciferous vegetables, Mm. our cauliflowers, our broccoli, our Brussels, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Cool. Wow. We packed a lot in here. Yeah, we did. We got it done. (laughs) And you thought this was going to be short. (laughs) (laughs) Never, never, never. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We probably should wrap up because people are going to look at this and go, oh, my God, it's such a long one. But it's it's uh, it's an important conversation. So thank you. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Again, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. You take care. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Flory, for taking time to share your extensive knowledge with us. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen to and download episodes. Sign up for the podcast bi-weekly blog newsletter to keep up on new episodes, archives, life updates, and healthy recipes. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. You can also listen to video slideshows of my conversations on the podcast YouTube channel. Find it by searching Real Janine. And remember, please subscribe. Do you know someone who would benefit from my conversation with Dr. Matt? I'm sure you do. So please share the love. Take care and